Amen. Thanks. Thanks, Stanley and the Holy Family. Thanks especially, Stanley, for reminding us that uh, worship is an interactive experience. Um, the church staff who work with me know I, I'm not picky about a whole lot of things, but there's a couple of things I'm picky about. One especially is the language that we use about worship. Um, my staff know that if they ever call the sanctuary an auditorium, they're going to be in big trouble with me. Uh, for an auditorium is where you come to be entertained, uh, but a sanctuary is where you come to meet with God. And and I, it drives me crazy when people call this up here a stage and not a platform. A platform is where people lead worship and uh, and a stage is where people perform. And, and nobody came to perform tonight but to lead us in worship. And the worst, the absolute worst, is if somebody calls the congregation an audience. Uh, for, I hope you knew this tonight, but you were not the audience tonight. God is the audience tonight, and we are his congregation. And so, Stanley, thanks for reminding us of that. Although you getting us to try to come out of ourselves reminded me of a story. I was thinking about this just recently because of uh, MLK Day. Um, Jim Wallace, who is the editor of Sojourners Magazine, tells a great story about a the very first day that um, we as a nation celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday, there was a special service held at Ebenezer Baptist Church where um, where King was pastor. And they invited Jim to be one of the speakers that day. It was several years ago, and Jim said, you know, I was, it was an honor to be invited, but I was so intimidated and so nervous. I've never been more nervous in my life. I knew there'd be a lot of dignitaries there. I knew... It would be just a high-pressure moment. And just to stand in Martin Luther King Jr.'s pulpit was just overwhelming. He said, so I, I got started, and I said, well, it's really great to be here today. And uh, so I was struggling along when this, this elderly African-American gentleman in the second row shouted, Oh, God, help him, God! <laughs> he said, so, so I started to come out of myself a little bit. You know, I started rolling a little bit, and he yelled, that's good, God, but help him more. Help him more. <laughs> so the whole sermon, he was shouting, and other people started shouting. He said, by the time I got in the middle of the thing, he said, I was rolling. I'm foaming at the mouth. You know, it was a great moment. He said, it turned, a bad sermon turned into a really good one. He said, as soon as the service was over, he ran down to that gentleman, and he said, I just wanted to thank you for helping me today. And this old gentleman looked at him and said, son, I've pulled sermons out of worse preachers than you. <laughs> and, uh, I love that story. It helps me a lot because it helps me know if this goes badly tonight, it's not my fault. Uh, you didn't pull it out of me. Uh, but if you have a Bible with you, yeah, help him God. Help him God. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this, this evening, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark again tonight to the seventh chapter, Mark chapter seven. Uh, I think I shared with you last week that a couple of years ago, um, I went kind of section by section, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Mark with uh, the congregation I pastor, and it was just a, a wonderful experience, and I keep going back to a lot of what we learned in the Gospel. Um, but one of the tough things when you do that is um, you know that there are texts coming that you don't know what to do with, and so when you plan it out you know, ahead of time, you know, man, there are some texts you're really looking forward to, but then there are some texts you don't know what you're going to do with. Um, the text I want to look at tonight is one of those. I, uh, when I took preaching in seminary, I, I took it with a guy who was my neighbor. Uh, we lived in, Deb and I lived in student housing, and 
Uh, we got to know our neighbors, Bob and Vicki, really well. And Bob and I started taking a lot of our classes together. So we decided to take preaching together. And, and at the seminary we attended, he had to take a whole year of preaching. And so uh, we'd been in homiletics class together for three quarters. And we'd heard each other preach like 11 or 12 times by the end of the year. And when we got down to our last sermon for the year, the professor said, I'm going to, you know, I've, I've kind of given you assignments before, but for this last sermon, it's yours. Pick what you want to pick, you know. And so Bob and I were at lunch one day laughing about, you know, how many times we'd heard each other preach now and thinking about what we were going to pick. And, and I said, hey, Bob, I got a good idea. Let's have some fun. I'll pick a text for you and you pick a text for me. And he said, okay, that'd be great. I said, so tomorrow we'll meet back again, lunch, and, and we'll have our texts. And so... So he came back, and the next day I said, okay, here's your text. And I gave him the text in the Old Testament where they cut the concubine into 12 pieces and scatter her body throughout the... Which I thought was bad until he said, the text I have for you is Judges chapter 4, the one where, where J.L. sticks the tent peg through Sisera's forehead. It was a beautiful sermon. Um, but when I got to this text uh, that we're going to look at tonight... Um, it begins at uh, verse 24 of chapter 7. I, I thought about leaving town and giving it to one of my staff members because it's a really problematic text. But, but the more I worked on it, the more I struggled with it, the more it, it became one of my favorite texts in Mark. And, and it, at first I didn't know what to do with this Syrophoenician woman, but the more I st- played around with this text and wrestled with it, the more she became one of my great heroes in the Gospel of Mark. And so I'd love to share some of those thoughts with you tonight um, out of chapter 7, beginning again at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went into the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know that he had entered a house, but he couldn't hide. In fact, a woman whose young daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard about him right away. She came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, Syrophoenician by birth. She begged Jesus to throw the demon out of her daughter, but he responded, The children have to be fed first. It isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But she answered, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Good answer, he said. Go on home. The demon has already left your daughter. When she returned to her house, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. There's so many things that are wild about this text. Um, Two things in particular that just seem so un-Jesus-like in this story. The first, we find out at the beginning that Jesus was worn out. Um, It just doesn't seem right that that Jesus would wear out, right? I mean, um, we think of Jesus in this way that surely, you know, he's, he's fully God and fully man. Surely that fully God part would give him, you know, kind of energizer bunny batteries that keep going and going and going. And there's people to minister to and people to touch and people to heal. And, and so surely he would just keep going. But, but in, in all honesty, even though it doesn't seem all that Jesus-like in some ways, this part encourages me that Jesus said, I need a break. I need a huge break, and let's go. I'm tired. Where should we go? Let's go to Tyre. It only makes sense. Let's go up north. And uh, so he goes to the, a region that's the furthest north that Mark tells us Jesus goes, and he goes there to hide. Um, again, that sort of blesses my soul. I, I know that 
in some ways, because of the kind of work that I do, I, I'm forced to be an extrovert. I'm forced to be with people a lot and really enjoy that part of it. But my true nature is really introverted. And so I tend to wear out quickly. And, and I'm, you know, my wife is my social buffer at parties. Uh, when we go to parties, she will stay all night. But about 930, I'm like, I'm giving her the sign, the, hey, let's get out of here sign. I've had enough of people. Um, great story about my oldest son, Caleb, who's wired very much like me. Uh, when Caleb was real little, uh, we, were, we were living in Pasadena, but, uh, where I live now, and I was on staff at the church that I'm now senior pastor of. Uh, but Caleb was with me. He was probably about three or four at the time. And it doesn't rain very often in Southern Cal, but it happened to be one of those, those three days a year where it was really raining. And I, I put this raincoat that somebody had given us on him that was this really cute frog raincoat that had eyes on it. You know, it was green, and he put the hood on it. Had a, and it had a matching umbrella that when he popped it up, it had a big tongue on it and eyes that sticked up. Stuck. And so we, we get out of the parking lot, and at the church that I'm a part of, the senior pastor's office this is one of my favorite parts of it. The senior, senior pastor's office has this big window that faces the front, and we're right at the foothills of the mountains. So my office looks out at the mountains. It's really a beautiful view, but it also looks out at the parking lot. So you can see whoever's coming, which is why there's also a back door to the office. Um, anyway, you'll understand that, won't you, Kevin? Uh, but, but the senior pastor then sees Caleb and I getting out of the car. And, they, and he sees him with this green rain, frog raincoat on and his umbrella. And, and so by the time that we got to the front door of the office, the senior pastor had run out and yelled at all the assistants and all the staff members who were there that day, hey, you guys, you got to come see Caleb. He, you got to see him. He's so cute. Come. So by the time we got to the front door, there were about 20 people waiting for us in the lobby going, you know, having that look like, Whoa, you know, and all ready to, to do the cute side like that, you know. And so as soon as we open the door, Caleb and I walk in and hear all these people to go, oh, Caleb, and Caleb grabs my pant leg and pulls on it. And in this loud voice they thought was a whisper, but it wasn't, looks up at me and goes, Dad, tell them I don't like people. <laughs> you know? um, I understand, son, but I'm paid to be here. Uh, you know, that, they, that some of you will really understand that, that, that you have a people monitor and every once in a while it's, it's, you're done. And so part of me is encouraged that Jesus just kind of worn out and says, guys, we've got to get out of here. The crowds are just too much. And I've got to recoup. I've got to recharge. I've got to get together with the Father. Let's go. Let's, where can we go that's a long ways off and they'll never find us? Tyre, let's go. Let's go. And so he goes to Tyre, but Mark tells us even there he can't hide. The rumor gets out quickly that, that he's come to town. But the really un-Jesus-like part of this text is what happens next. Mark tells us a Greek woman who is Syrophoenician by birth, which means that she's not just a Gentile, but she's like an uber-Gentile. She's like a super-pagan Gentile. Somebody from Syrophoenicia who's been part of, more than likely, various religious practices that make her about as un-Jewish as you possibly can be. And a Syrophoenician woman comes and finds Jesus and says, my daughter is possessed and is being torn apart by evil spirits. I know that you have the power. You can heal her. And, and here's the moment. Jesus says just the most seemingly un-Jesus-like thing. He says, listen, I, I, I'm here to feed the children. And the children have to eat first. And 
the dogs eat later. Now, before you want to rescue Jesus, okay, because we all want to rescue Jesus out of this one, because this is one of those moments where you're speaking to a group and you just said the absolute wrong thing, right? I think he just called her a dog. And not like the cute puppy kind that you carry in a thing, you know, in the ancient world or in, in third world countries today, you, you see the dogs there. They, they, you do not take them to Petco. They are not groomed. They are the dogs that run wild that make sure that the rats get out of, don't get out of control and, and you don't pet them. They're, they're dogs. And it just seems like such an un-Jesus-like thing to say. And so some scholars you know, want to rescue Jesus out of this and say, well, he was testing the disciples' faith, and that may indeed be the case. Some scholars want to say he, he, was, he was testing this woman's faith. And that may indeed also be the case, although Mark doesn't say that to us. It may very well be the case, and most scholars kind of land here, that Jesus was just telling her the truth. Listen, I came for my people. I came to begin the mission of God among the children of Israel. Take a number, lady. We'll get to you. But not now. I've come. My primary mission's not for you yet. It's for, for the children of Israel. But the woman won't have any of it. She says to Jesus, yeah, that may be so. But even the dogs get to eat from the scraps that fall off the table. Now, if you have your Bible still open, notice what Jesus says. He says to her, verse 29, good answer. Some of you in your translations may have something like this. He'll say, because you said that, um, your daughter is healed. In other words, what I want you to notice tonight is that he doesn't say this, wow, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. He doesn't say anything about how she has demonstrated faith. He just says this, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, they do, don't they? That's a good answer. In other words, and I hope you'll be okay with this, I, I decided to preach this on Thursday night because only the really spiritual people come on Thursday night. And so, so I know you can hang with me here. But, but, but let me press this just a little bit. Let's be uncomfortable for just a minute or two. Please don't blog or tweet this. But, um, but I want you to wrestle with the fact that, that, at least for Mark, the woman argues Jesus into healing her daughter. So I, I want to propose something to you that's kind of radical. And that is that in this text, at least, the woman seems to get Jesus more than Jesus gets Jesus. Let me say that again. The woman seems to understand Jesus in some ways more than at least the way Jesus is presenting himself than the way he gets himself. In other words, she says basically this. Let me tell you something. I've I know who you are, and I've watched you, and, and there's, there's a power at work within you. There's a grace at work within you, a grace that's bigger than you, a grace that, that spills out, a grace that not only fills the table, but overflows the table. And out of that, even there, somebody like me might receive what we need. And Jesus goes, oh, you know, that's absolutely right. Good answer. And because you've said that, your daughter is healed. You see, what I want you to understand tonight is I think, um, I think in some ways there's kind of two people in the church, two groups of people, people who get it and people who don't get it. And by the way, if you have to ask what it is, you probably don't get it. That this woman is an example of somebody who gets it. And she, in some ways, gets it more than any of the disciples get it. She gets it in some ways 
in ways that are so profound that she even convinces Jesus to do something that originally he wasn't going to do. Because she seems to understand the work of God at work within him that does the immeasurably more than, ever, than all we could ever ask or imagine. Now, let me give you one more example of that, okay, so, so you won't be uncomfortable. Um, go with me to Exodus. I'll show you one other time when I think this happens. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. It's this great moment where Moses is on the mountain receiving the law from God. But if you remember this story, Moses goes up the mountain. When Moses goes up the mountain, the people start to panic that maybe this God who has delivered them out of Egypt is really connected to Moses. And when Moses is gone, maybe God's not here either. And so they freak out and decide they they need to have some gods with them while Moses is gone. So they go to Aaron and say, we need some gods. And in particular, we need, since Moses is gone and took with him Yahweh, this God who makes us wait day by day for bread, what we could really use are some bales. And the Baals or the Baals in the Old Testament are those gods that are almost always fertility gods. They're, They're gods that make sure our crops always are produced. So So the best deal in the Old Testament is if we can worship Yahweh, but still worship the Baals, so we can worship God, but we can also make sure our storehouses are always full and our bank account's always, you know, way above zero. And if we could do that, that would be great. And that's always a temptation for Israel. He said, we need these gods. And so Aaron says, great, grab all your jewelry, throw all your gold jewelry in the pot, and they mix it around, you know, and, and they create, they form for themselves a golden calf. So while Moses is on the mountain getting the law from God, the Torah from God, the people are forming a golden calf, and God gets ticked off, rightly so. So in chapter 32, verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses, Hurry up and go down. Your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt are running every, ruining everything. They've already abandoned the path that I commanded. They have made a metal bull calf for themselves. They've bowed down to it and offered sacrifices to it and declared, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've been watching these people, and I've seen how stubborn they are. And this is my favorite verse. Now leave me alone. Let my fury burn and devour them. Then I'll make a great nation out of you. So let me stop there for just a minute. It's a great text. God says, oh, Moses, ah! your people, they have made a golden calf. That makes me so mad. I'm barely, we've been gone five minutes and they've already torn up the house. They're ruining everything. They're worshiping other gods. Get out of my way. I am going to smite, smote, whammo them. Get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to torch them and then I'll rebuild through you. This is what Moses says. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God. Lord, why does your fury burn against your own people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and amazing force? Why should the Egyptians say he had an evil plan to take the people out and kill them in the mountains and so wipe them from the face of the earth? Calm down your fierce anger. Change your mind about doing terrible things to your own people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Your servants, whom you yourself promised, I'll make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And I've promised to give your descendants this whole land to possess for all time. Then notice this verse. Then the Lord changed his mind. 
about the terrible things he said he would do to his people. Now again, you're going to have to do whatever you want to do with that text. But here's what I love. God says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to kill those people. And Moses says, wait, God, before you smite them. Remember, you are Yahweh, full of steadfast love and mercy. You've made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. If you kill them, the Egyptians will talk bad about you. Remember, you're God. And I love this. It's as though God goes, oh, that's right. Oh, man. Ah. You're right. Okay. I'll, I'll show steadfast love and mercy. Isn't that cool? It's such a great test. Here's what I want you to see. Moses, like this Syrophoenician woman, this is one of those moments where, where Moses seems to get God more than God in the moment gets God. And the Syrophoenician woman sort of gets Jesus more than Jesus in the moment gets Jesus. Now, please, again, don't tweet that. But what the scripture wants us to see is maybe not so much that quality of the father or the son, but But what I want you to see tonight is the power, the power of people who get it. The power of people, the power of God through people who understand the nature of God's grace and transformative work in the world. The power of God at work through through somebody like Moses who says, God, judgment isn't the last word of the story because your nature is love and mercy. The power of God at work in a a woman who doesn't even belong in the story. She's so far out of the picture. She's a Greek. She's Syrophoenician. But because she understands the nature of the overflowing, transformative grace of God, she can say to Jesus, yeah, but the dogs get the scraps. Oh, that's right. Your, Your daughter's healed. The reason I share this with you tonight, and it's deeply personal for me, I so desperately want to spend whatever days God gives me left in ministry hanging out with people who get it. Um, I I got my first ministry position at 19 and I've had a ministry position in the church ever since, so about 28 years now. And sometimes I'm even the one that's the problem here, but But a lot of my ministry life, I feel like, has been spent trying to fight battles with all of us who at times really just don't get it. And it's a time where I think this is um, where it's easy to fall into the wrong kinds of perspectives. We live in a rapidly changing world. Uh, The generation that has been leading the church that generation has experienced massive change culturally. Massive change. Uh, my grandfather, who, who was in ministry all of his life and just went to be with the Lord just a few years ago, wasn't that long ago that he was called to ministry when the DS came out on horseback and said, Harold, I got a church for you if you can find a wife. He was 18 years old. He wrote my grandmother a letter and said, Edith, the DS will give me a church if you'll marry me. How romantic is that proposal? What woman can turn that down? 
By the way, the romance has not gone up a whole lot in our family tradition. But, uh, but she said yes. And, but, but I mean, you think about technologically where the world was just, just not very long ago. But not just all the technological advances that are amazing. Um, what you carry around in your hand in that smartphone is, is incredible to think about. The way that's changing culture. But the rapid, what a lot of us will call it, kind of the post-Christianization of our culture. My grandparents led the church. They started their ministry in a time when the church was relatively in control still of society. In fact, we could have arguments between denominations because most people thought they were Christians. We just wanted them to be Nazarene too because we didn't trust the Presbyterians. Baptists. <laughs> So we can have fights with each other and convert people to particular denominational traditions. Why? Because just about everybody thought Christianly. They just needed to be more committed. In fact, even the words like we're using this week, a revival, assumed people had something already in them. They just needed it revived. Right? You now are taking control of a church where there ain't anything out there. Where very few people have any kind of church memory or any kind of Christian sense hanging into them. And so ministry looks different. different. The challenges look different. I think if we could go back in time and say to my grandfather, tell him the things that we were wrestling with at General Assembly this last summer, it would have blown his mind that in just not a very long period of time, we were wrestling with issues I know that some of you won't understand this. It was not very long ago we were trying to decide if we could have a television in our house or not. I was within my lifetime. And I am not that old. (laughs) Some of you are old enough to remember that when my dad got ordained, the question they asked him, and I'm sorry for you young people, you won't get this. The question they asked my dad when he was ordained was he had his wedding band on. And the one question they asked was, Theron, would you be willing to take your wedding band off? Can I tell you that culturally, we've moved a long ways from concern about whether we are finally adorning ourselves. Most of you have a wedding band in your nose at this point. (laughs) The culture has changed. And what happens when that happens is, Folks like me and older than me, we freak out. We don't know what to do. And so we get tense and concerned and and we begin to be shaped more by our fears than anything else. And when you're shaped by your fears, you begin to tear each other apart. Because you're terrified that something might get in that shouldn't be here. and, And we've already lost so much, so we better protect what we have left. And you get shaped by those kinds of fears. And it's, it's a deadly kind of world that we live in when that happens. I, I don't want to preach another sermon tonight. We've got to get out of here eventually. But I, I wrote a book a few years ago on the seven churches in Revelation. And my favorite one is the, the church in Ephesus, the very first letter. Where Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I, I love you. you. You've stood up against heresy, the Nicolaitans, this sort of Gnostic group in the first century. You've stood up against them. I don't like them either, Jesus says. 
And you've been so good in a city like Ephesus is changing so rapidly. You've had great filters of orthodoxy. You have kept the Nicolaitans out. But I have this against you. Do you remember? You've lost your what? Do they not teach the Bible at this school? You've lost your what? Your first love. You've lost your first love. Now, I used to think that meant you've lost those kind of warm, fuzzy feelings you have about Jesus. But most scholars say, no, what it means is this. In a church that's focused solely on who's in and who's out and what we need to guard ourselves against in a culture of change, it's really easy to become discerners, to become heresy battlers, and to lose the love that connected us from the get-go. Somebody should have said amen there, right there. And I I just want to say, I've spent an awful lot of the last 27 years dealing with my own fears and wrestling with the fears of others. I have to tell you one really embarrassing experience. A couple years ago, I got invited to go to South Africa to uh, this global evangelism conference. Uh, Billy Graham, several years ago, in Lausanne, Switzerland, invited a bunch of global leaders together to talk about world evangelism. And then there was a second gathering many years later, and this was another kind of gathering like that, where about 400 people, 400, 500 people from the U.S., but people from all over the world gathered together. And it was a wonderful week, kind of thinking about evangelism around the world and and celebrating what God is doing all over the world. There's a Pentecost that goes on about every 30 minutes in our world, and it's amazing. But they put us in small groups, uh, and so we would, they'd have a speaker talk about a certain subject, and then they'd go to our, we'd go to our tables in our small groups. And, and so around my table were all of these wonderful young leaders from all around the world. There was this young woman who was a, an attorney in India working among the lowest castes, working for human rights among the lowest caste systems in India. And, and there was a, a young African leader um, working in, in Muslim areas, and who shared about all the persecution going on there and, and just all around the table, Middle Eastern leaders and leaders from Mexico and South America and, and just all these places. And so one of our sessions, it was so embarrassing, one of our sessions was about breaking down divides, right? Breaking down boundaries. And they were talking about breaking that down. And they said, now break into your small group and talk about how God is helping you break down divides where you are. Thankfully, I was last. We started with the young Indian attorney, and she was sharing about what God was doing and breaking down the boundaries between these ancient caste systems and breaking down boundaries between Christian and Muslim and just all around the table, these amazing stories of what God was doing. And then they got to me, and they said, Scott, what boundaries are you breaking in Pasadena, California? And I said, I have done such a good job of uniting people who like contemporary and traditional worship. Isn't that awful? I spent an awful lot of the last 27 years dealing with people who are more shaped by their fears than they are by this, an understanding of the amazing transformative grace of God. You know that's where we started, right? Church of Nazarene started in the inner city. I don't know if you know where our name came from. It comes from John chapter 1, where where Jesus meets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Brzee and others liked that line because they wanted to be the church 
about Jesus the Nazarene, but they also wanted to be a church that was oriented towards people nobody thought anything good could come from them. Because we were a people filled with the optimism of grace. We were going to go where nobody else would go because they thought it was hopeless, but we'd go there because we get it. We get that death doesn't get the last word, so sin doesn't get the last word, and brokenness shouldn't get the last word. And we just were fueled by this optimism that says, God can do it, and so we'll go do it in his name. And I just want to say, I hope I got about 20 years left. I want to spend it with people who get it. I'm tired of fighting the battles of fears. And believe me, there is a lot to be fearful of. (laughs) Dr. McGee and I were at dinner together talking about the changes in education. Oh, as an education administrator, there's days I feel like I just bought three blockbuster franchises the day after Netflix came out. (laughs) 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 This is a true story. My first week at Pasadena First, the senior pastor, I went to this meeting of of church leaders, and, and they invited me to be on this, this panel to talk about where will the church be in 25 years. And the first statement out of somebody's mouth was, the era of the big church is over. And I was like, I just got here. You know, <laughs> it's over already. Uh, it only took me a week. Um, there's a lot to fear. Um, and Deb and I have been trying to raise four kids in a culture we don't understand very well. A culture where we're just a mess sexually. We used to at least have some materialistic hopes, but we're not even sure where economies are going. And a world that's so incredibly culturally rich but diverse and brings all the tensions that are there. What I want to say to you tonight is I think what the kingdom could use is a couple Syrophoenician women are willing to stand in a gap like Moses and argue for God to be God (laughs) and to dare to believe that God will be God. I was at a, a meeting of, it always sounds like a joke, but I was at a, at a lunch with, with rabbis, Catholic priests, and, and Protestant ministers. Um, and I was always like a rabbi, a priest, and a minister went into a bar. But, uh, but I was with this group of Jewish leaders and Catholic leaders and Protestant leaders, and we were talking about prayer. And one of my favorite lines of the day, we were, we were talking about prayer, and one of the rabbis goes, you know the problem with you Christians? Is, is you don't yell at God enough. So read those Psalms. So we Jews, we believe God's promised us something, and we're not going to quit bugging him until he delivers. <laughs> it changed my prayer life. <laughs> what I want to say to you tonight, especially young people, mess us up, okay? Mess us up in some good ways. Because the church we're about to hand you has been largely shaped by the fears of the changes that are going on. And what we could use are some Syrophoenician women who, tr- who get it, who, who know God enough that they can say, yeah, this is a huge challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity.
yeah, we live in a post-Christian culture. And that's so hard. But it also gives the church the opportunity to be genuinely the church again. Yeah, we live in this amazing, culturally diverse culture that is just crazy in some ways. But it gives the church the chance to stop being just homogeneous units. It gives us a chance to truly be a Pentecost people who are united in our diversity. A body of people that only the Holy Spirit could pull off. Not even the UN could pull that off. Only the Holy Spirit could. People who see the the flattening of the earth and all of the challenges that brings economically for us who've been so used to being in charge. See that as an opportunity for the mission of God to spread across the globe. We need some people who are not so shaped by their fears, but are shaped by this amazing understanding and hope that we have in the God who overcomes death and sin. And the 21st century is no problem for him either. And we're going to call on God until God does what God wants, what God has promised he will do. Some people who get it. I'd love for us tonight to pray. I, I know it's not always our practice anymore to kind of move to altars. And so you, you respond how you need to respond tonight. Some of you may be in a situation where you, you, you've got to do something with your body. So get up out of that pew and come and say, God, I, help me to be one of those people who lives by hope. There's a line in Zechariah. It's one of my favorite lines. Zechariah calls up all the prisoners of hope. It's one of my favorite lines in the scripture. Do you hear the irony in that? A prisoner of hope. I'd love to be cynical, but I can't be because I've been captured by hope. A prisoner of hope. Some of you may be a prisoner of fear tonight. And moving forward would be a way of saying... God, I want to give those fears to you. I don't want to be a prisoner to those fears anymore. I want to be a prisoner of your hope. I don't know how you want to respond tonight, but if you need to, I would love for you to respond in that way. The splendor of a king Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, and trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God.
and age to age he stands and time is in his hand beginning and the end beginning and the The Godhead three in one. He is Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb. How great is our God. Sing with me. Father, thanks uh, tonight for your love for us. Thanks that your character and nature, that the very essence of who you are is that you are a God full of steadfast love and mercy. Help us to know that we know that we know that. I pray for those who come tonight maybe some who come with fears about what's going on in their lives and their homes, fears about the future, fears about a world that changes faster than any of us can keep up with. Our prayer tonight, Father, would be that you would help us to set aside our fears and to become prisoners of your hope. Give us the grace and the the spirit of Moses to to stand in the way and to plead with you to do what you've promised, to form a people who will be your light in the world. 
give us the spirit of the Syrophoenician woman who, who says, yeah, but God, your grace is too big to leave this situation alone. Your grace not only fills the table, it overflows into corners of, of darkness, corners that seem God-forsaken, but, but we know now there is no place called God-forsaken for your grace is big enough to make all creation new. And so empower us. I, I pray for all of us who are 45 and plus over. Have mercy on us for the ways fears have largely shaped much of what we've experienced. Give us your hope today. And I especially pray tonight, God, for these young people. We love their idealism. It's what makes college kids so great. But my prayer tonight is that their hope would not be in themselves. For like many of us who thought we could do it, uh, we learned quickly we can't. It's not in us to do it. But may their idealism not be in systems or structures and leaders or governments, and certainly not in themselves, but may they have a tenacious spirit and optimism of your grace. May their hope and our hopes, may our hope be in you, for you are great. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Come and make all things new. Come to Quincy, Massachusetts and make all things new. Come to Eastern Nazarene College and make all things new. Come to this nation, make all things new. Come to your creation, every corner, and make all things new. For we pray this in the name of the Lord of creation. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen. And let's stand together. Let's sing it again. Get us in the right key, Stanley. I'm sure there's a... Y'all want to come? The splendor of a king Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to die And trembles at His voice Trembles at His voice How great is our love Sing with me How great is our
to continue as long as you need. Thanks for being here on this uh, lovely Thursday night together. Uh, If you've listened well, please hear again. This is not a sermon to say, quit being so pessimistic. We need to be optimistic. For we're neither, neither pessimistic or optimistic. We are prisoners of hope. It's not about us. It's about his power at work within us. That's why this benediction's for us tonight. And now unto him who by the power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in this people he has called his church. And in the King of kings and Lord of lords, his son, Christ Jesus, now and for all generations. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.